We're going to be going through and starting to go through Christ the Mediator. Now, as we've tried to outline several times in our confession, in both the Reformed Baptist and the Presbyterian confessions, we can divide up those confessions of faith and their logic and thought process into to four distinct categories. Anybody remember what the first one was? It's an easy one. It's first things, foundational elements of the gospel, right? And they were considered what scripture is, who God is, what the God's decree is, and how he executes that decree in, in creation and providence. And then last week, or two weeks, brother, you went through the second part, the beginning, which is chapter 7, God's covenant. Chapter 7 through chapter 21 is going to be dealing with the covenant that God made with his people. And that ought to tell us something, right? In a 32-chapter document, we have 14 of those chapters taken up with covenant theology. And the reason that's significant is because in the Puritan mind, in the Reformed mind, the covenant of God is the central piece of all of redemptive history. Now, I bring that up with such force today because Joey finished covenant theology last week, but we have a transition piece in chapter 8 and verse and paragraph 1. Last week, we noted Joey went through the gospel being revealed by farther steps, and you'll notice, if you have a copy of the confession in front of you, that in the middle of that, it says that the covenant, the covenant of grace, was founded between the Father and the Son, about, uh, is founded in that co- eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of his elect. Okay? We're introduced here to the theme of the covenant of redemption. That is, a pre-temporal, that is before the created world came into existence, an eternal covenant between the members of the Godhead. And that is repeated again in chapter 8 in paragraph 1, which we'll attempt to go through today. It reads this, It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man. The prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be in, by him glorified, in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Okay? So, we're called here to look from the bare notion of what a covenant is to look at the covenant mediator. Okay? There's somebody that mediates that covenant between God and man because man on his own is no longer able to put himself under the original terms of the covenant offered to us in the Garden of Eden. No longer can we yield perfect perpetual obedience to God. No longer can we do anything, right? So as the divines once said, if you have a debt that is to be paid, you first have to pay the penalty of that debt before you can start paying the principal on it, right? We were going through that in the morrow this week. And us, likewise, we are not only unable because of our corruption of flesh to keep the law perfectly that God requires, but we're unable to even pay that penalty that came before. If we did, we would have to suffer eternally in hell, and eternity has no end. 
But even if we had a special strength to to try to bear the weight of God temporarily in a space of time, we would be totally crushed and demolished under the weight of that. So we need somebody else to come and to save us. We need somebody that's perfect man that can do according to all the covenant of works perfectly, but also God who can bear the weight of the punishment of debt that we have brought upon ourselves. And that's what we're called to consider these next several weeks in chapter 8. And I would have us turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, I think this is just a wonderful theme for what we're going to be going over for three, perhaps four weeks. Okay, John chapter 6. We have here Christ calling the people to believe upon him. And not just to follow him because of the signs that he was giving them. Okay? So, we have here, trying to find the text, came to me this morning, this would be a good place to start. Um, We start with behold, and if anybody can... Help me with that. I'd be appreciative. My mind is still kind of racing a little bit um, from going and picking up the family. We're reading in John chapter 6, and we're looking at Christ. He tells the people to behold, um, to behold God, and to behold the Son of God in order to have eternal life. Um, And I'm trying to cheat here real quick. Regardless, we are called here to look and behold the Son of God and to believe upon Him whom He has sent. Okay? Um, nobody's truly seen the Father, we are told, but we are called to behold, on the, behold the Son of God, to look upon Him, to think on Him, to contemplate Him that we might have eternal life. And that's what we're going to be doing over the, past, over the next several weeks. And first today, we see the ordination of a mediator. The ordination of a mediator. In paragraph 2, we see the incarnation of the mediator. I apologize for sending us on a rabbit trail and I was unable to find it in time. Paragraph 3 is the qualifications of the mediator, where we see the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the commission of the Father. And then paragraphs 4 through 10 is primarily going to be talking about prophet, priest, and king and how it is executed. But here... Again, today, I just want us to spend a little time talking about the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. And please turn with me to Luke chapter 22 as we begin to consider this. Now, I don't know if anybody's heard the the famous line that said of St. Augustine, that somebody came to Augustine and asked him what God was doing prior to the creation of the world. Has anybody heard this before? And he said, supposedly said, he was creating hell for people who ask questions like these. Okay. That's pretty strong. Um, But at some point, that's well taken. That we are only able and we're only permitted 
to look in Scripture at the things revealed to us in Scripture. And to try to peer behind the veil at what God has not been pleased to, be, to reveal about himself is really sinful. Okay? We must trust what God has given to us. And so the question that should come to our minds is, well, did God reveal to us that there was a covenant made before time began between the members of the Trinity? And we would say, yes, the Scripture does reveal that. And one of the first places that we see this come to be is in Luke chapter 22 and verse 29. Now, it's not extremely clear in our English translations, but if you'll indulge me to give a little bit of history behind this text, Theodore Beza, who was the one who took over for Calvin, they were of the opinion, and rightly so, that the translations that we all have in our laps and that what they would have in Geneva would be from the Greek... In Hebrew, Old and New Testaments, and not from the Latin Bible of the Catholic Church, right? And so, Beza set about to translate from the Greek to the French, I think, at the time that he was translating to. And he came across, verse 29, and I can't remember what the Catholic text said, but you'll notice this. Christ is speaking to his disciples, and he says, you are those... Who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Okay? Now, this language, as I assign to you, my Father assigned to me a kingdom, the original word here is always related in the New Testament to covenanting with people. Never is there an occasion where this word to assign, which does properly mean that, is taken out of a covenantal context. And this caused Theodore Beza, and it caused many of the Reformed to think that what Christ is really saying here could be interpreted and could really be translated, and I covenant to you as my Father covenanted to me a kingdom. Now, that's not the end of the story. But we see here a seed that began to grow in the Reformed thought that before time began, there was a covenant that was made. But before we get to the before time began part, I want us to just think about language that Christ uses that clearly shows that there was an agreement between the Father and the Son about the work of redemption. Where do we see language like that? One. Hmm? No, no, you're fine. Uh, verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Um, I'm, bad at, I'm bad at scanning today. I'm finding things, so. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness yes. of Yes. Yeah, so, so we have plan language, right? Plan language of in Christ before the foundation of the world. Where do we get an idea of a transaction of the Father giving the Son a people? Where do we get that kind of language? John 17 is primary. Turn with me there. 
And again, all we're trying to show here is that before we think about an eternal covenant of redemption, that there was a covenant made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit kind of implicitly, that Christ would perform the work of creation. And that's what we're talking about in this covenant, that the Father planned to save a people. Christ accomplished the saving of that people, and the Holy Spirit applied the salvation of that people. Okay? But John 17, we get more explicit language, specifically in verse 2. Notice this. I'll read verse 1 as well, because why not? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that he may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom, to all, to all whom you have given him. Okay, so we see here Christ revealing to us that Christ has the authority to give eternal life, salvation to all those, a specific group of people. The specific group of people is who? Who the Father's given him, right? And we see the same thing in verses six through eight. Notice. Christ again says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They were in the world, and they were given to him to be out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know and believe in the truth that I came from you, and that you... And they have believed that you sent me. Okay? Particular people given to Jesus Christ. And Jesus here praying and saying to his Father that all those you've given me, I'm going to save them. I have saved them. And I've given my word to them. Okay? We have this transactional language given. Where else can we think of this kind of transactional language of the Father giving to the Son a people? Well, that's where we just were. Yep, yep, that's true. Yeah, that's where we just were. But there's another place in John, brother. John 6. Where are you at, brother? Verse 37. Yes. We have, and the Father. And I want you to notice that there's other language that, that shows not just a people given, but a mission. Okay? And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Okay, so the Father sent the Son to the earth, right? And why did the Father send the Son to the earth? You know, in John 3, it's because of love, right? He so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Now, we have in John chapter 10, this same kind of language. That is, language that Christ teaches us of a transaction between the Father and Him. Notice, Christ says in verse 25 to the Pharisees, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice, my Father who has given them to me 
is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And so we have a number of things here. When we look in John chapter 17, that God gave Christ authority, okay? There was a time when Christ was given authority to give life to people. There was a time when Christ was sent into the world. And a time when the Father gave the Son a certain people. And the question that we should have is, when did that happen? Right? It it certainly occurred at some point. When did those things take place? place. And the answer that we're given pretty explicitly in Scripture is that these things happened in eternity past. Okay? Now, why this is important is because it does away with any kind of theological system that would say that God get, made the world and had a certain plan for it, for Adam and Eve. That Adam and Eve would never fall, they would, they would never go into sin, But then when sin entered the world, it kind of foiled God's plan, and he had to make a plan B. And then that didn't work, and he had to foil that plan and make a plan C, and then he finally sent Christ. Oh, that worked, right? It's not what the Bible teaches us. That before any of these things ever took place, God was not reacting to what he saw on this earth to save his people. He always had in mind to save his people. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 1.9. These are the two primary texts, the clearest texts, I think, in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 1.9. Joey pointed this to us last week, but we'll do it again. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 1.9. We'll read in verse 8. Writing to Pastor Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed... Excuse me, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay? There was grace given to us before the ages began. Now, we experience that in time, right? What, what would we call the grace given to us before the ages began? It's not justification, right? Because we're justified in a moment of time, yes. Predestination or election, right? There, there's grace given to us. That God knew the sinfulness of humanity that would come after Adam, and we were chosen. Grace was given to us prior to creation coming into existence. And we experience that worked out in time as we're convicted of our sins. The Holy Spirit comes upon us, gives us new life, and we believe in Jesus Christ. He gave us, and the time is, before the ages began. The second text, which is even clearer, is Titus chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Notice, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, we, we talked about several definitions for a covenant last week. 
Does anybody remember any of them? People define it differently, so you can be wrong and probably be a little right. Sworn promise between two parties is, I think, a very good definition, right? There, there could be a compact or an agreement, a contract made, okay? Now, the issue with just thinking about it as a contract, okay, is that there's kind of piecework done on both sides. You accomplish your part and I accomplish my part kind of agreement where really the product at the end is what's aimed at, Right? But a covenant in biblical language is much deeper than that. Where sometimes there is only one party that swears a promise, and it's called the covenant, okay? And sometimes there's no stipulations offered in the covenant. We even see this in man-made covenants, uh, made the Old Testament, where sometimes uh, people would be arguing about a well or something like that, and they would build a pile of stones, and they would just cut a covenant and say, I swear not to come to your side if you swear not to come over to me. Or I swear not to attack your people if you swear not to attack me, right? Now, there's no warnings given in that. But what's at the base of that is faithfulness, okay? A covenant at its base is the faithfulness of the party saying, I'm going to be faithful to you, okay? This is the covenant I'm making with you, and it's bound up in a relationship. I will be faithful to you. Okay? Now, there might be stipulations added to it, but that's not the base of a covenant. And that's what we see here in Titus. That before the ages began, there was a faithful covenant made between the members of the Godhead, promising eternal life to God's people. Again, the Father plans, the Son agrees that I will go and I will accomplish redemption on behalf of those people. And the Holy Spirit says, I agree and I will I will save all of those people in time. I will fill them, take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, cause them to walk in my ways, and cause them never to fall away from the path. And God promised this, it says, before the ages began. Literally here, before times eternal in the Greek. Okay, Before times eternal, before anything was ever created, our God and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit designed to save a people. And that's because our God is a covenant-making God. It, it's rooted in His character, in His nature, to be faithful to a people and to come down and be faithful to us. God, in His grace, was revealed even before time began. Now, we see here in the 1689, that first it, it pleased God to do this. And that he chose and ordained Jesus Christ. He chose and ordained Jesus Christ. Now certainly, you could say he chose the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to do it. But I think that we have something a little deeper being offered here. He not only chose the divine person in the Godhead to do it, he chose the, the human nature to do it. He chose and ordained a certain man that he would create in the womb of the Virgin Mary to do it. Now, this is why, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 42, we, we get some perplexing language, but that has been interpreted 
throughout Christendom to be referring to Jesus Christ. Notice what's said here. And I believe that the same word chosen here could be translated as elect. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Does that sound familiar? Or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus Christ was ordained and chosen in his, certainly, as the second person of the Trinity. But the human body that God was going to prepare for his son was chosen. We, we see this again. We read this last week at the beginning of worship in Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40. And this is quoted in Hebrews 10 talking about Christ. Okay? Notice verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. And how Paul translates that is a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The human nature of Jesus Christ was fitted in all of its physicalness in order to be suitable vessel to do what he was called to do in the covenant. He was chosen. He was ordained for this office. God and man, prophet, priest, and king. He's going to be a mediator between God and man. So the covenant that we have needs a mediator. right? And this is, I hope old news to us, but it's good to re recall, okay? Because you and I, as human beings outside of Jesus Christ, have no right to go to God. We're at absolute enmity with one another, right? We're hostile to one another. We hate one another. We're at odds with one another, so to speak. God cannot just come and save us without a sacrifice. He can't just sweep our sin under the rug. He's at odds with us. He's at war with us. And we're at war with him. We don't want to go to him. We hate him. And we will not go to him. So there must be a mediator come. And the mediator must represent both parties. So therefore, he has to be fully God and fully man. And to bring these two parties together, he has to satisfy the justice of God and bring man's nature into right alignment with God. And that's what our Savior does. Now, and I'm just walking through this briefly, go through it in much more detail in the next couple of weeks. We see that he does that by being our prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world. Now, as our prophet, just briefly, he's our mediator, right? What does a prophet do? He declares God's word. He tells us, as our prophet, the sinfulness of our hearts, first and foremost. Convinces us of our need of a Savior that we cannot come to God on our own. We cannot have salvation of our own. And then proclaims to us the word of eternal life. Many times in the scripture it says that Christ is now preaching the gospel through every gospel that's ever been presented. Okay? He's a priest because we need substitution. And he lays down his life as substitution. We need prayer to God. 
And he gives prayer on our behalf. He's a king because we have sin still existing in our hearts and we need God to rule and reign over our sinful natures and to bring us into submission. But we also need protection from our enemies. We need the kingdom to come. We need subjects to be saved to him, his elect. And so this mediator, God promised before all times to bring a perfect mediator for God's people. Promised. The Son promised He would do it. The Father promised He would send Him. The Spirit promised that He would make it all perfectly applicable. Okay? And He, again, repeated, He did from all eternity give a people to be His seed and to be by Him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Okay? So, as we consider these things, It can seem just maybe like a mere academic exercise to say, well, the Bible teaches of a pre-eternal covenant, and it can be stimulating intellectually to think about, but I'm going to tell you today that this has deep ramifications for how we think about God and how we think of the Christian life. What what does it say about God? How should it cause us to worship our God, knowing that he made a pre-temporal covenant, a covenant in eternity? That's right. Did you notice that in Titus 1.9? He says, God who cannot lie promised before time began. I don't think that there's anything else that should convince our hearts and our minds that the salvation of all of God's people will in fact happen in the end. That the Trinity itself had a covenant before time. And that God himself entered into a promise with the perfect, the greatest beings the greatest being that ever existed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to accomplish the things that he has promised to do. should give us great comfort and hope, brothers and sisters, that our God is a covenant-making God. He not just made a covenant with us to believe on his Son. He made a covenant with himself. cannot be broken because the members of this covenant are perfect and will not break covenant. If in their being is this propensity to make covenant, and covenant means faithfulness at its base, okay? Think of that. The perfect faithfulness. God is faithfulness. Have promised to do it. Certainly it will be done, right? How else does this cause us to worship our God? Nicole. Because he trusts that he will 
forever hold on to his end of the deal despite our shortcomings and our disappointments or reneging of the Amen. Amen. And that, that should cause us to think about Hebrews 7, and I'd ask you to turn there with me. Hebrews 7. We read, and verse 20, and it was not without an oath. That is, Christ being ordained to the ministry of priest was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said, the Lord has sworn. When did he swear? That should be a question in our mind. This is Psalm 110 being quoted, and I'll tell you this is in eternity. God has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and notice verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Translation might say a surety of a better covenant. And what might come into our mind is a coast. Okay, so I don't know if when you were young, you wanted to go buy a car and you couldn't and you had your parents co-sign for you. Something my parents would never do, but perhaps you experienced that. Um, they, they would co-sign, meaning... Like, here's, here's what you have to pay, and if you don't pay, somebody else will make up for it. But that's not what this text is saying. He is not a co-signer on the covenant that God gives us a covenant and says, do as best as you can, and where you fail, I'll make up for it. A guarantor is somebody that comes and says, I know they can't pay, and I'm going to pay it all for them. That's what a surety, a guarantor does. And Christ legally fulfills that office. As Encoli was saying to us, he comes and in covenant says, I will save all of these lost, ruined, and poor sinners by my own grace and my own grace alone. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant. Now, just because we have time, and I've been reading a lot on this lately, the better covenant, it's better than what covenant? Covenant of works. The old covenant, covenant made with Moses, right? It's better than that covenant. In that covenant, there were stipulations added that if you don't do according to my law, then you're not going to inherit the land, okay? But Christ is a guarantor of a better covenant. He does it all for us, every piece of it. And all we have to do is receive, rest, feed, eat on Jesus Christ. And, and we get it all. As Jesus swore at our beginning text in Luke 22, my Father has covenanted to you a kingdom as he covenanted to me a kingdom. The faithfulness of our Savior. We will receive a kingdom just as our Savior has received a kingdom. Okay? That's how we tie these loose ends together. We think about the covenant that God made for all eternity and he made it to his son who came down to this earth who bore our sins and Jesus in faith said, God covenanted to me to give me that kingdom. No matter what I suffer on the cross, no matter what I endure, the torments of hell in my body before I die, God's covenanted to me and I rest on that covenant. And we say the same thing. Just as he covenanted to Christ, he covenanted to us a kingdom. And we ought to be greatly assured that we can, we can rely on this Savior. Because even the Father found him to be faithful enough to enter into a covenant with him. Do we have any questions? 
or thoughts? Brother. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like we talked about, I heard Caleb mentioned that he is our God. Yeah. Before us, that, you know, the main reason for him revealing himself is for his people. And that's worthy of praise more than any other God. Amen. Amen. He made a covenant before creation on our behalf. That's right. That's right. And I, I think that it is somewhat... Um, Paradigm shifting to consider that our God is a covenant-making God. He enters into covenant. That with Adam and Eve, the first covenant, the covenant of works, as Brother Jason brought up, God entered into covenant with the people. But we've broken the everlasting covenant, as Isaiah 24 tells us. Right? And he's come to make another covenant, a better covenant. One that we have no obligations but just to believe on the mediator who was sent for us. All right. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, the oath, the covenant, the blood that support us in the whelming flood, Lord. Uh, We thank you for the promises given to us that are more than sufficient for us to boldly live the Christian life because you're the one who made them. God, I thank you that it depends not on us at all, but you've entered into relationship with us. And if we're in relationship with you through this covenant, God, that relationship itself demands obedience and faithfulness on our part. Not that we fear breaking the covenant, but that's just what relationships do. And I pray that your name would be glorified, that we would see the great goodness that you have done to us by making us your people and making yourself our God. And that in thankfulness we would live our lives boldly for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.